Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. Okay, um, I call this message, let's start at the very beginning, dot, 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 dot. Because it's a very good place to start, right? When you spell, you begin with A, B, C. When you sing, you begin with Do, Re, Mi. The beginning's a very good place to start. However, most people's perceptions of the Christian gospel don't start at the beginning, And when you don't start at the beginning, it creates a whole raft of issues simply because you started at the wrong place. So in our our video, our house video, there are three statements in there that I want to just quickly refer to tonight as we deal with this. We believe in a joy that overcomes. Now let me just clarify that um, to help you. There is a difference between happiness and joy, okay? Um, Happiness is what you feel because of something. Joy is what you experience in spite of everything. So some of you are happy people but not joyful people. And the Bible doesn't say the happiness of the Lord is my strength. The Bible says the joy of the Lord is my strength. When you find the place that circumstances are not dictating your response, you find the place of joy. And it's a joy that is in our video, a joy that overcomes because it's not circumstantial. It carries you through everything. We believe in a love that endures. Okay, A love that endures. A love that can't be, can't be regulated down according to what you think is your level of spirituality, or regulated up. Because there are some people who think God loves them more because they're so darn holy and spiritual. Well, he doesn't, and in some ways I could argue that's a great way not to experience what the love of God is about because it's called self-righteousness. And I've taught you this before. Jesus never had a problem with unrighteousness. He had a problem with self-righteousness. So the unrighteous, he opened his heart and his spirit and welcomed them in. The self-righteous, he called them all kinds of names. He said, you like tombs that are open with rotting carcasses inside. You know, you like moldy food. And he said, here's what you do. You put burdens on people's backs because you try to make them as jolly self-righteous as you are. You don't lift a finger to help them and you turn them not into twice the holy people you are, but you turn them into twice the sons of hell that you are. So, this is the love that endures. It it, it endures all the seasons of life. It endures all the activities of life. And and it's a love that never changes, which most Christians would say, I believe in a love that endures, but then we neither practice that nor experience that. 
So a love that endures really does embrace and accept. Now, now there's a difference between acceptance and approval. So you may be behaving in a way that I don't think is God's best model for your life, but I will accept you 100%. But I may not approve of what it is you are doing. Here's the problem. In church life, very often, disapproval meant unacceptance. And that's the giveaway that it's not the gospel of Jesus because the gospel of Jesus accepts even in areas that it does not approve of because that's how love then begins to work to touch lives. It's interesting, Chris, Chris talked um, a couple of weeks ago about the woman at the well. Great message, really terrific message. Out leaving your water pots behind. And one of the elements in that story of the of this foreign lady, this non-Jew, this uh, Samaritan woman who Jesus talked to at the well, uh, he said to her, go and fetch your husband. And she said, um, you know, uh, I haven't got a husband. And he said, no, you're absolutely right because uh, you've had five husbands and the one you're living with now is not your husband. Here's how I was raised. She was an adulterous woman. Or she was a prostitute. That's horrible. What the heck? Read anywhere in there where Jesus was using that as a condemnation of the woman. You see, nobody ever stopped to think, what if she had five husbands that had died? And she hasn't married this one because she thought, the five that I've had have died, and there seems to be one common ingredient here. Marriage. See, see, when you come from a spirit of acceptance, when you have a love that endures, you are not reading condemnation into everything. You're reading grace into everything. You're reading kindness into everything. We believe in a love that endures. And we believe that Jesus reveals God's heart. Not the Bible, although the Bible contributes to that process, but only in so much as it records the events, but Jesus is the revealer of God's heart. You see, you can read the Bible through the lens of, you know, we're praying that God will involve himself and totally destroy the men, women, children, and cattle and give us possession of the village. See, you can read the Bible in that way. But you see, Jesus reveals God's art. We we don't look at Jesus through the lens of what the Bible seems to say. We look at the Bible through the lens of Jesus. Jesus reveals the Father's heart. He reveals God's heart. Let me give you two quick scriptures. Hebrews chapter three, uh, chapter 1 and verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God looks exactly like Jesus. Jesus is God's selfie. This is me. In thought, in word, and in deed. And Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 30, and and there's another verse goes with that, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So we believe Jesus reveals God's heart. Now, we haven't got this from the screen, but I'll just tell you, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, there is an incredible chapter uh, that's in the middle of a lot of stuff that some of you will be familiar with about things like speaking in tongues and prophesying and, and faith and 
And right in the middle of that, the Apostle Paul says this. He says a strange thing. He says, now these three remain. Now these three remain. In other words, Paul, who was probably, well, he was certainly the greatest communicating apostle of that era and had plenty to say, but it's like Paul summarizing all the stuff that we have spent endless hours and, and, and endless energy trying to accomplish, Paul says most of that is just stuff. Because once you use the word remain, you have to be talking about taking something away. So if these three remain, I could rightly put in there in the text, when you take away everything else that's just stuff, only three things remain, faith, hope and love and the greatest of these is love. If we spent more time trying to live in those dimensions of faith, hope and love instead of fighting battles over the what, the when, the how, the why, the interpretation, the theology of this, the theology of that, the world would be a better place and we would be probably much better and changed people. So I want to give you three of the enduring, staggering aspects that are revealed in the light of this in what the Bible calls the New Covenant. Okay? It's a new covenant that God made with us for those who are interested. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 8, I've talked a lot about this. God says, I'll make a new covenant with my people. Now, now a new covenant is a new covenant. Okay? Right? Do you understand that? Right? It's a new covenant. Which means it's not a refurbished model of something old. It's replaced what was old. When you get something new, it replaces the old. You don't put it with the old. So I've often said if you build an extension on your house, you don't have a new house. You just have the old house with a new bit added on. Jesus is not the extension to Judaism and the Old Testament scriptures. He came to bring a new covenant, and what is new has to be new. And within that new covenant comes this emphasis that says, all that stuff that you spend all your time fussing over, three things really matter. Get your head and your heart on these things. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. But the three enduring staggering aspects revealed in this new covenant are this. Listen to this. That God believes in you. See, the old covenant was all about can you believe in God and how much can you believe in God and what can you do to prove you believe in God. And along comes Jesus declaring God believes in you. Isn't that fascinating? God believes in you. And that the new covenant gospel is not can I get you to believe in God, it's can I get you to believe that God believes in you. The second thing is that God's hope for you is optimistic, not pessimistic. You know the difference between optimism and pessimism? Optimism sees a glass half full of water and says, that's half full. 
We're on the way. Pessimism says, half empty that glass. But you see, the problem is outside of faith, open love, we have a pessimistic view of God because we think God has a pessimistic view of us. God's looking and thinking, Femi. Whew, taking something on with you, girl. But you see, God looks at a sweet girl like Amy, who's not from some of our backgrounds like us, and he thinks, oh man, if I can just get her to understand that I believe in her, and if I can get her to understand that I am extremely optimistic about where we can go together, it's going to be great. The best is yet to come. That's part of the gospel. And then the third one. Sorry, we don't want Siri. Shut up, Siri. It's not your time. So, new covenant is that God believes in you. That God's hope for you is optimistic, not pessimistic. And here's the third one. That God has faith that he can draw goodness and faithfulness from you. See, we, we have a, a measure of that that we do to God, but you need to understand, God lives by this towards us in the new covenant. God has faith that he can draw goodness and faithfulness out of every single one of you. So if we root this back, we find that this message has been screamed at us from the beginning of time, and that when finally somebody decided to write this down, and we finished this up, we finished up with a book called Genesis, the book Beginnings, Genesis. The writer was very clever because he decided to start it in chapter one. Which was a classy move. Let's start this with chapter one. See, the reason I mentioned that is that. Most people's understanding of God and the church's message, by and large, doesn't start in Genesis chapter 1, it starts in Genesis chapter 3. And so let's have a quick look at that. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Who's the central character in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? God. I think it might be. Is it God? Who's the central character? Right, I want you to have some confidence. God is the central character. And what is he doing? Okay. Now, so what we have is he starts with God and expansion. Okay, so Genesis 1 1, God and expansion. Now we go to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. It's there. Now the, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from the tree, any tree, in the garden, okay, here's our question, and with confidence you answer, who's the central character? Okay. <clears throat> the serpent, who does the serpent represent? Satan. 
Now, whatever you thought on that, Satan, the Hebrew word Satan, means an adversary, an adversary, an adversary. Not a friend, not a helper, an adversary. So the serpent, or Satan, let's call him Satan, is the central character. And what is he doing? He's being very crafty. More crafty than any of the animals of the field. He has a cunning plan. What is he doing? He's not creating, he's undermining, undermining, undermining. Did God really say, what's he doing? He is trying to undermine the concept of who God is. This is not just about he's trying to get Eve not to believe the Bible, because there was no Bible. What he's trying to do is connect with Eve's experience of this person called God and to undermine who she thinks that he is, her image of God. And so with Genesis 1, we have God and expansion. With Genesis 3, we have Satan and contraction. Because the story is now all focused on us. Yeah. Genesis 1, it's focused on God. Genesis 3, it's all focused on us. Now many of you figured when it became focused on us, it didn't work out too well. Now, because God has enduring love, a love that endures, it wasn't a matter of God then coming in and saying, that hasn't worked out too well, has it? It's your own stupid fault. It was God trying to bring us back out of that contraction of us to the expansion of himself. So when Jesus turns up, he's saying, okay, people, I've come as a human being in order that you might see the expansion Back to God who creates, not the contraction to humanity who fails. So with Genesis 1, we expand into the creativeness of God. With Genesis 3, we contract into the smallness of man. Where are you living? Where are you living? Where are you living? Genesis 1, we expand into the creativeness of God. Genesis 3, we contract into the smallness of man. Where are you living? Where's your gospel begin? It's important. And the problem is that we become sin conscious instead of God conscious. And the church has done a great job in making sure that we are very sin conscious. Now hopefully not this church for many years. I was really good at it. But I'm not sure it's one of my proudest achievements. Being able to make people sin conscious. I'm more interested now in making you God conscious. Because sin conscious contracts us into Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent is the central figure. So you become obsessed with the serpent. Genesis 1 expands us back to God's creation. Now let me also tell you what Genesis 3 does 
as opposed to Genesis 1. It makes you think that the serpent is an equal and opposite power to God and that there is a tussle going on between two extremely powerful beings and it's not true. The best weapon that the serpent had was to try and get Eve to make choices that would dismantle a correct image of God. And he could only do it by deception and by whispering in her ear. Has God really said, did God say that? Is that what God means? You know, God doesn't really, why would God love you? Look what you've done. Look at, and he still uses the same methods, whoever he is, wherever he is, whatever he is, that same adversary does the same thing. He gives a running commentary to make you sin conscious. Where you live in. Still a lot of us living in Genesis 3. Because in Genesis 1, we find what changes darkness to light, what, what turns chaos into order, what turns nothing into something. And it's not recognizing sin, it's recognizing God. It's not being sin conscious, it's being God conscious. And when we become God conscious, the world changes. So Jesus didn't come to say, oh, by the way, you weren't listening, so I've come direct from God to make you more sin conscious. He said, I have come to make you God conscious. He didn't say, if you've seen me, you'll know how sinful you are. If you see me, you'll realize how vile humanity is. Did he? He said, when you see me, you'll see the Father. You'll become God-conscious again. And when you become God-conscious again, you'll come back into the place where the creative power of God brings wonderful change in your life and all around you. So how, how we think the whole thing gets resolved is rooted in whichever consciousness we are in. So your understanding of the whole gospel and of Jesus will depend on where you start. So if, if, you, if you start your assessment of yourself and of God from the contracted place of humanity, how you perceive the rest pans out will give you all kinds of theories that we've talked about on a Wednesday night that are all about fixing the problem. Rather than releasing the answer, creating something wonderful. Now, of course, you know, how you think the whole thing gets resolved is rooted in whichever consciousness you're in, God consciousness or sin consciousness, but then I also have to include some of you are totally unconscious. <laughs> I'm doing my best. <laughs> in a coma most of the time in terms of life. Time to wake up. The sooner you wake up, the better. Don't want you to wake up when you're 40, 50, 60 and think, oh, rather you wake up now. See, we miss recognizing the power, presence, and expansiveness of God. And in exchange, we exalt the power of Satan and the constriction to smallness and the weaknesses and failings of humanity when we should be recognizing the power, presence, and expansiveness of God as the cause to change. As the focus shifts 
our image of God distorts. And because of this, what we think he does and what we think he wants distorts as well. It's like those funny mirrors that you stand in front of them and they do all weird things to your body. Your image of God has become like one of those mirrors. He's become this strange being. And and the problem is that when you think like that, what you think he does and what you think he wants gets just as distorted. And most of it's stuff. He wants us to do that. Yeah, but it's just stuff. I wants this. It's just stuff. These three remain. Faith, hope, and love. Now, some stuff's good and some stuff's important, but it's still just stuff. Faith, hope, love. I'm from a very, very strong Pentecostal heritage, which for some of you don't fully understand. That means I come from a bunch of uh, tongue speakers, Bible-believing, hard-preaching, you know, evangelistic, and, and proud of my heritage, and thank God for all that I learned in that. But you know, in that arena, I've met people who could quote the Bible, read the Bible, believe the Bible, pray like a saint, speak in tongues, and with the meaner than a junkyard dog. Because somehow when it got out of the arena of, of, of public visibility, faith, hope, and love weren't there. And it was all, I have this gift and I have that belief and I can quote that scripture and I've prayed this prayer. And that's not everybody. But what it shows you is that that is just at the end of the day stuff. And Paul says, even if you speak in tongues, even if you know all the tongues of men and angels, if you have faith to move mountains, if you can prophesy, if you give everything to the poor, but you don't have love, it's just stuff, not very good stuff. Now, I'd like you to have stuff, but not put it first. So where is our image of God distorted? Because what happens then, we develop theories and and we echo what, what the great uh, Christian mathematician, scientist, inventor, philosopher, Blaise Pascal said um, over 500 years ago. Here's what Blaise Pascal said. God created man in his image and man has returned the favor. Powerful words. God has created man in his image and man has returned the favor. How much of your God and his thoughts and actions replicate how you would behave as a human being looking at the problems that he faces? How much of what you think is the judgments of God is the judgments of you? How much of what you think is God's unhappiness with that being done, your unhappiness with that being done. And then we create God in our image and we stick a few Bible verses with him and then we bring that distorted God out. But that God came from Genesis chapter 3. Chris made a great statement on Wednesday night. The problem with humanity is not that we are God-rejectors, but that we are God-creators. Did you get that? The problem with humanity is not that we are God-rejectors, it's that we are God-creators. 
that's the problem that across society, we are actually creating a God in our image. Atheists create a God in their image and call it atheism, but it's actually got all the attributes of a God. It's worshipped, it's obeyed, it has its sacred texts, it has its meetings, and we worship at the altar of atheism. There is no God where you just presented a God to me because every aspect of what you just did is an aspect of creating gods. We are not God rejectors as human beings, we are God creators. That's the problem. So my issue is not to say stop rejecting God. My issue is stop creating God in a distorted image and be willing to go back to the very beginning because it's a very good place to start and find this one who is expansive and creative whom Jesus came to say, I've come to show you the God that has become distorted by all your religion and your theology and your nationality and all of that stuff. I have come to restore your image. It's in me. So here we also believe in the restoration of all things. Jenny talked about that a few weeks ago. And our starting point is Jesus. Now I want to put an emphasis in there. We believe in the restoration of all things, right? All things. What's your all tonight? Because we believe in the restoration of all things. We believe the Jesus who puts people clothing in the right mind. The Jesus who says, go show yourself to the priest because you're now clean. The Jesus who says, stick your hand out because everything's changed. We believe in that Jesus, and I want you to to believe in that. We believe in the restoration of all things, but our starting point is Jesus, right? Not domesticated house-trained Jesus, okay, who would never poop on your carpet or stink out your house like our Zeus now. Because I'm serious, we, we have created, we've created an image of Jesus that is domesticated and house trained. If you really read the Gospels through the lens of Genesis chapter 1, the last thing you could ever accuse Jesus of being is house trained and domesticated. He really turned things upside down, shook things around, shake them up, spun them around and required a response. That's the Jesus I believe in. But he also showed us what the Father was like. He loves. He accepts. It's enduring. So Jesus puts in a new Genesis 1 where creation, not devastation, are the order of the day. The whole point of Jesus is to put us in a new Genesis 1. That's the new covenant. A new Genesis 1 where creation, not devastation, are the order of the day. How many of you like a little creation instead of devastation going on? So here's the deal. I preached for years. You need to invite Jesus into your life. You need to invite God into your life. I don't preach that anymore. Because I think it's God who invites us into his life. See, it's not something you do, it's something you accept. 
See, see, if we have to invite him into our life, we are the ones controlling. We give him an invite, hoping that God will accept our invite. How arrogant. Oh God, the creator of Genesis chapter 1, will you please come into my life? Mm, well, okay. It's the other way around. God sent a massive invite right from day one reiterated it again in Jesus and said, I'm inviting you into my life, okay? RSVP. Do you accept? It's something you accept. Do you accept? How many of you tonight accept God's invitation into his life? How many of you accept the invitation? That really is the gospel, us in accepting an invitation into God's life. So it becomes then, it's not about my effort, it's about his provision. God created the heavens and the earth. Wow, you're inviting me into that. And you know what happened, don't you? The story from then on, every day was saying, yeah, but the best is yet to come. Day one, he looked and said, that's good, but the best is yet to come. The next day, that's pretty good, but the best is yet to come. See, when you live in Genesis 1, the best is always yet to come. And even when you get to the seven-day cycle that was in creation, you get to a God who says, okay, it's finished, but it's very good. In other words, I might have finished what I'm doing, but I'm not ending the partnership here. We're going to continue to do this together because you're part of my creative order. God invites you into his life. So my questions tonight, will you believe in his belief in you? Will you believe in his belief in you? He believes in you. Will you hope in his hope for you? Will you put your faith in his faith about you? And then you've come into a Genesis 1 experience because it says, and God said, let there be, and there was. Right? It's not, and God said, let there be, and there was quite a few struggles and really quite difficult, and we had to have a few committee meetings, and then once we'd created a few animals, we better include them in the decision. And it says, God said, let there be, and there was. So when we put our faith in his faith about us, we are coming from the place of what we have to do back into the place of what he has already done. And when we come to that place, stuff finds its proper arena in the equation, and we realize actually there's only three things that matter, which is faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. The gospel of Genesis chapter 1 is that the best is yet to come. That's the gospel of Genesis chapter 1. The gospel of Genesis chapter 3 is the nightmare is only just beginning. And you better be afraid, be very afraid. Which do you want to live in? I'm sick and tired of Genesis chapter 3 theology. I'm in Genesis 1 theology that says, hey, the best is yet to come. And that's where we're living. Now, if you want to explore these principles further, Wednesday night is the time to be here and you'll learn something that's going to help you. So stand with me. Father, whatever anybody else does, I want you to know I, I wholeheartedly, thousand percent, unreservedly, every fiber of my being, body, soul, spirit, accept your invitation for me to come into your life, 
to participate in your life, to be part of who you are. I accept that you believe in me. I accept that you have a hope for me. And I accept that you have a faith towards me. And that in my life, the best is yet to come. I thank you for Genesis 1, which is always turning darkness to light and chaos to order and nothingness to something. It's the whole order of it. Father, I receive that again today. And I thank you that when we live there, we can say in every moment, it's finished. And we can look into the future and say, it's still finished. And what we have to do tomorrow, it's finished. Because we live in the creative order of Genesis chapter 1. We apologize for distorting our image of you, for having the audacity to create you in our image. And we repent of that tonight and let you free and let you loose. And we also open our sticky, frozen fingers that hold on to that stuff that we like, that's our stuff. This is the stuff we do that I'm good at that shows Help us to prize open our fingers tonight, Lord, and just let you have that and say, God, it's just stuff. We're happy to use it, but it's just stuff. Because they take the pressure off us, because we try so hard sometimes to do stuff that you're thinking, why are you doing that stuff? Help us to live in the place of faith, hope, and love. Teach us what it means to live in that space of faith, hope, and love. And let in all of that the greatest always to be loved because we believe in a love that endures. That's what we believe, in the love that endures. We believe in a joy that overcomes and we absolutely believe that Jesus reveals God's heart and we accept that heart for us and come into that with faith today, receiving all that it will bring for us because we're blessed and the best is yet to come. Amen. Amen. All right. So, do we need to do anything, are we? No, they said we don't need to do anything. All right. Let me, let me just encourage you. We, uh, part of the cultural shift in the house, and, you know, things have moved us that way, is that uh, we don't have so much going on before church on a Saturday night now, but lots of people still hang around and chat afterwards. So uh, in a little while, we're going to shift. Yeah, when we come back from India, we're going to shift from having the, the, the kiosk at the beginning. You'll still be able to get a coffee back in, in you know, from the machine in Pillars, but we're going to shift that to the end because it seems more people are staying behind after than are coming before. Do you understand what I'm saying? So we just want to make that so you can get a coffee and a, a donut or whatever and afterwards just enjoy a chat and, and we're just moving with the way the, you know, the way the tide is going so we can accommodate it. So we love you, we bless you, appreciate you and um, we'll, Wednesday night some of you will be good, making your first Wednesday night. I'm going to talk about some of this stuff on Wednesday night in a deeper level to help you understand how you cannot possibly believe the gospel to be what you thought it was if you understand what the Bible is really saying about the gospel. We'll touch a bit of that on Wednesday. So we love you, bless you. We're done. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.